All right. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We've only got three verses left in chapter 1. Or turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We only have three verses left in uh, chapter 1. And that's fast for me going through a chapter personally. Uh, we're going to be looking at focusing on verses 18 and 19. Next week when we look at Hymenaeus and Alexander, these two apostates, I want to look at them and I want to look at the idea of church discipline and what's going on there in uh, 1 Timothy and what we can learn from it to be a healthy fellowship and healthy believers. But we're going to be looking at verses 18, 19 and a little bit of 20 because that gives us the context. Uh, But thus far in Timothy, we have been learning and I sure hope you're having a good time because I love getting the word with you guys and I just love just, just taking deep dives into God's word. But it's interesting, we've learned in the first few verses that Timothy warned Paul to, or I should say Paul told Timothy to stay at Ephesus to make sure certain people weren't teaching strange doctrines. Uh, the church at Ephesus was still vulnerable to false teaching. And then he warns about some of those false teachings in verse 4 and and then in verse 5, he talks about the goal of Paul's instruction to Timothy was love from a pure heart, right? A good conscience and a sincere faith, uh, which, you know, you really, I told you that's a key verse. And you're going to see this evening, because we're going to go back to that verse this evening, as to how big and how key and how important that verse is. I think when the first time the Lord really made me fall in love with that verse. I really didn't understand how it connected to the rest of the book until sometime later. uh, And I realized, wow, that verse, verse five, that I thought is just such a good verse because he says the goal, the end, teleos of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I just thought, wow, I love verses like that, that kind of just, you know, they're instructive and that they let you know what it means to be, you know, to follow the Lord. Uh, and I like those nutshell verses that put a few things together or a couple verses t- sometimes like Malachi 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He has shown the old man what is good and what the Lord requires you, but to do justly. That means to just do what's right, to love mercy, amen? Not only loving his mercy on you, but showing mercy to others and loving his mercy that you can show to others, amen? Which brings peace and joy. And not only that, but uh, he goes on to say a sincere faith, and we need to have a sincere faith here, amen? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God, I better finish that verse, uh, Malachi chapter six, verses seven and eight. Three things, to do justly, do what's right, love mercy, love is mercy, love being merciful, and walk humbly before your God. Those are three important things. Yet here in 2 Timothy 1, 5 in the New Testament, he says the goal of our faith are these three things. And then he goes on to talk about how people have got away from that, and they started teaching the law, and they didn't even know what they were talking about, he says. And they didn't understand that the law, he said, was made not for the righteous, but for the wicked. And that God gave the Old Testament law as a tutor, as Paul says elsewhere, to lead people to Christ. Amen? Amen. Then Paul proceeds to give his testimony, which we studied the last two weeks, right? That he was the chief of sinners. And that the, the gospel is about, you know, it's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I'm the worst one, right? But he goes on to say he's a pattern, so all of us can know that we too could be saved, amen? amen? And what a beautiful, beautiful truth that is. And that's blessed so many people through the years, countless people. That became one of my favorite verses right off the bat. I was like, I didn't know any Christians. 
And I don't know if God's going to accept me because I was a bad, bad boy before I became a Christian. And then I'm like, wow, he accepted this guy, Paul, who was having all these Christians killed. And he said he was the worst and I'm not the worst. You know, you know you're not the worst, but you, you feel like that, right? <laughs> when you're staring your, your sin in the, in the face, you see how repugnant it is before God and, and you just grieve over it. And then you realize, you know, but you can't receive grace until you mourn your sin, you know. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Amen. Those who mourn their sin. And you can't just come to Jesus and say, oh, I'm going to become a Christian and not deal with the sin problem. You've got to realize that's why he went to the cross. So then he gives his testimony. And he says it's a pattern. It's an example. And our testimonies I mentioned to you last week and tried to share with you that that's how we're supposed to apply that to our lives. We also, our lives are patterns for other people. Amen? And we shouldn't just use that verse and say, wow, Paul was saved so God could show me that I would be saved too. Because Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I won't cast away. And praise God, I can come to him and I have that assurance. And that's beautiful. We need to know that. But we can't stop there. We have to say, guess what? If he saved Paul, he could save that guy. He could save that girl. Amen? And we need to be outward focused uh, and not just looking at it introspectively at, wow, praise God, I've got grace for myself. We've got to get the salt out of the shaker, right? The light beyond the flashlight in, into the woods or into the world and find the lost people and share the good news with them. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, amen? amen. We need to be evangelical. We, when people ask what we believe, who are we? We tell them, sometimes you might say, hey, I'm a born-again Christian, you know? And that's almost redundant because every true Christian is born again. Everyone who's truly born again is a Christian, amen? But you almost have to say that because there's so many nominal Christians who have not been born again. They're not seriously trusting Jesus. They just grew up in America and say they're Christian. But sometimes you have to also say, hey, I'm an evangelical Christian. In other words, I believe in evangelizing. I believe in the Great Commission. I believe in obeying Jesus' words and following him and serving him and bringing people to Christ. Although you have to be even more more selective almost in what you describe now because so many under the banner of evangelical Christian has, have gone just so wayward. So we need to just be in the word of God and declaring God's word constantly. So it's very interesting because in this passage that we have before us, we're at verse 18, and I just reviewed a lot of what we just talked about the last several weeks. Paul says this, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, now notice he calls him his son again, amen? And he already had addressed him as his true son in the faith earlier. He calls him his son. Now, he wasn't, Paul wasn't Timothy's physical father, right? His dad was an unbelieving Greek man, but his mom was a believer and his grandmother was a believer and the faith that was found in Lois and Eunice, his mom and grandma was then found in him because they shared their faith with him. And they taught him the scriptures, it says in Timothy, since he was a little one, teach your children the word of God. Teach your children the word of God. It goes so fast before you know it, they're out of the home. If you have children in the home, treasure that opportunity to teach them the word, amen? Because uh, there'll be a time when you're not able to teach them and you'll be hoping and wishing that you had invested in them and shown them the word of God. So Timothy is now Paul's spiritual son in the faith. And I gave a message several weeks ago that we ought to, those of us that have been believers for some time, we ought to have children in the faith. You know, John said, I have no greater joy than this that I see my children walk in the truth. He wasn't talking about his physical children at home, you know. 
Not that he wouldn't have joy regarding that, but each of us, you, you become a father in faith to one degree or another by leading people to Christ. You bring them into the kingdom, they're born again. But uh, one man sows, you know, another man waters, right? Another one, you know, harvests, and the Lord gives the increase. We all can play a part in the edification of brothers and sisters in Christ, amen? We can nurse them along even if we didn't lead them to Christ. Not everybody's, you know, bringing people to Christ. Others are building up those who have come to Christ, but they're denying themselves. They're still serving the Lord. They're still bearing fruit, amen? We need each other. So that's critical. So he says, my, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the, now he says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. Now this command is in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Now we don't know specifically what prophecies were uttered to Timothy because they're not specifically spelled out. We just know that there were prophecies that were given to him. We'll come up across this a later time. Uh, and these prophecies tied into Timothy fighting the good fight. Amen. Fighting the good fight of faith. That's what he was called to do. He was called to fight the good fight. And now understand this, that he was called to fight the good fight in accordance with those prophecies. Now, there are, we believe, two huge extremes in the body of Christ. And we're not well served by either extreme. And one, one extreme is to say that, oh, you know, prophecy is done with. It is no more. God is done. He, he doesn't uh, speak to his people uh, prophetically anymore, uh, you know, and that was, you know, that gift passed away when the canon of scripture was closed, when the book of Revelation was written in the 90s or so. Depending on when you believe the book of Revelation was written is when somebody will declare that they've ceased. I guess preterists would say that it stopped, you know, sometime in the 60s or so because they have an early date for the authorship of the book of Revelation, which is wholly inaccurate uh, because, well, I don't want to get on the new I've done that before with regard to preterism. But uh, having said that, it's important to understand that that's one extreme to say the prophecy, God's done with prophecy. He doesn't, he doesn't speak like he, he did. He can't use somebody to speak to you or to warn you uh, and so forth. And uh, that's not scriptural, okay? Otherwise, the two prophets in Revelation chapter 11 who prophesy for 1260 days during the coming tribulation period would be false prophets. And the book of Revelation would be wrong. Because it says they'll prophesy 1260 days, amen? amen? And it says your old women, you know, you know, old men will dream dreams, your, your daughters will prophesy and so forth. I'm sorry, it says your old men will dream dreams, your, your daughters will prophesy and so forth. And then it says, you know, and right up to it says, the, it indicates that it's up to the coming of the day of the Lord when the Lord comes back. Because he talks about pillars of smoke and the mud turning, the, the, the blood turning, the, the blood, <laughs> blood moon recently, right? The moon turning, you know, to blood, and red, red like blood and so forth. And, you know, it's interesting because Jesus said in Mark 13 to his apostles and us by way of the apostles, because they were called to teach us what he commanded them, second, or Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. They were told when they are brought before leaders, not to what? Premeditate what they're going to say, but what? The Holy Spirit would give them utterance, amen? And the Bible speaks of the testimony of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy in the book of Revelation. Amen. And by the way, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
Paul says where there are tongues, they will cease and prophecies, you know, they'll be done away with and so forth. And then he tells us when. When, Paul, will prophecies be done away with? He says, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. That's 13.8 and following. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away. And he's just been talking about prophecies and tongues and so forth. Well, did he mean the Bible there? No, absolutely not. Because he goes on to describe what perfection would look like. He says, when I was a child, you know, I thought as a child, you know, he lived as a child, right? And then he says, when, that, uh, when I became an adult, you know, I put away childish things. And these things will be put away eventually, these gifts. But Paul went on to say that when that which is perfect has come, he says, we will know as we are known. Does anybody here know as they're known by God? Don't we have that kind of knowledge that you know as God knows you, you know? You have that kind of knowledge? I don't. Not even close. Amen? And I study my Bible a lot, and I can never say I know as I'm known. No. In fact, we know when that which is perfect will come because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, even though they're blowing it and they're misuse of the gifts, he says, I thank my God that you combine in no gift as you wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's when he's the one that's perfect who is coming. Amen? Amen. Then we'll see him face to face. Amen? We'll be transformed in his likeness. Amen? Our knowledge will increase radically, you know, then we'll know as we're known and, and so forth. But so the gifts of the Spirit have not been done away with. And prophecy, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, it's defined this way. But he who prophesies speaks edification. That's to build up, right? Exhortation, right? That's to encourage and comfort to men. And there's a bigger range of what I'm giving you because I'm not giving you the depths of the meanings of all those words because we're not going to just isolate on prophecy tonight. I want to cover more ground than that. But it says that prophecies, he was prophesied, speaks for edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Now, it's interesting. Prophecy isn't always, thus saith the Lord, this is happening in the future. Uh, you read the prophets. Much of what they said was teaching in righteousness, inspired by God, Okay. There's times that God, if you're praying, God, use me, speak to me, speak through me, encourage people through me. There's times when you're speaking to people that God will put thoughts on your heart that you may not even know that you're prophesying, that you're giving somebody, that you're speaking to somebody right in the depths of their heart and they're being moved and they're saying, wow, how did this person even know this, you know? And the Holy Spirit's at work. Uh, so we have to be, but we also, there's that other extreme. So, but it does say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22, that area. It says, do not despise prophesying. Don't despise prophesying, okay? However, here's the other extreme. That verse also says, don't despise prophesying. It goes on to say, test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Catch that? See the balance? When it's talking about prophesying and not despising prophesying, it says, test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Just as Timothy is told to hold what? Hold fast to the, keep the prophecies or, or, you know, keep the faith, right? Uh, good conscience and, and the faith in relation to the prophecies that were made about him in regard to his warring the good warfare, fighting the good fight. So we're called to test everything because here's the other extreme. People come up to you, I got a word from the Lord for you. And it's just totally false and totally wrong. Well, if you claim to have a prophetic gift and then you say that 
God spoke to you and you said this is going to happen to you, or you and be very, very careful when you ever say something to anybody like that, you know? But I'm not saying God can't put it on your, someone's heart. God uses dreams and everything else to warn us and so forth. But you can't go up to someone and just say, oh, by the way, you know what? The Lord told me that you're going to have triplets, sister. And then all of a sudden she doesn't have triplets. Well, guess what? You need to repent of that right now. Not right now. It's not going on. I don't know about anybody doing that. Maybe, you know. But somebody be listening by live stream saying, whoa. You know. But uh, you need to repent and not prophesy anymore. Amen? Because you're not a prophet. And you've proven yourself to not be a prophet. Now, if you continue to prophesy after you've made a false prophecy, then you've proven yourself to be a false prophet because you haven't repented and you continue to claim to be a prophet when you've made a false prophecy. You can be forgiven. Jesus died for all sins, but you need to repent. And that means turning from claim to be a prophet of God. And I have a real hard time when somebody comes up and they say, I'm an apostle. I am a prophet. Call me Prophet Frankie. No, okay. Right away, I think, I, I think this is the last guy that's a prophet if he has to announce it, you know. There'll be two prophets that will prophesy during Revelation chapter 11. You know how many people, probably thousands of people thought they were those two prophets, right? And God gets their attention. They realize they're, man, I was just really zealous, you know. Other times they still think they might be or are, you know. It's going to be crazy because the two guys that are are going to be actually right at one point. Am I one of those two prophets? Well, two guys are that going to be that, right? Okay. Now, it's just interesting when you look at the text here is he says, I command and I trust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Okay, that you fight the good fight. Now, look what he, so fight the good fight. That's a name of our ministry long before Blessed Hope started is fight the good fight or good fight ministries, you know. I've been getting interviewed a lot on different radio shows, and, you know, they'll ask me, how do I contact you? I say, goodfight.org, because that's the easiest one, you know. And uh, goodfight.org, you know. But that's a, I love that. I love that. But it's a, it's a military term. We are in a spiritual war as Christians. You understand that, right? And we're called the, you know, it's like, well, there's war going on in the world. Yeah, guess what? If you're a Christian, you've been at war since the day you got saved. And Paul is told about the weapons of his warfare right here being a good conscience and faith. And these are two things that apply to each and every one of us as Christians. Do you realize how far a good conscience goes in your walk with Jesus? How far faith goes in trusting the Lord through your trials? And how the enemy's on the attack trying to get you to give up your faith and there's a real war, a real battle, where he wants to dislodge you from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, notice I said 1 Timothy 1.5 is such a key verse. Because what does he say now, moving to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19? Keeping what? Two things he mentions here. Keeping faith and what? A good conscience. Keeping faith. Faith, that's your, your trust in the Lord. You know, keeping your faith in Jesus, trusting him, looking to him, leaning upon him for your salvation and looking to him for your salvation and, and, and for strength to meet, you know, your, your, your needs and to meet the needs in regard to the warfare that you're waging is two of your weapons, two of your tools are good, good conscience and faith. Notice he emphasizes these two. 
These are two of the things he mentioned in verse 5. Go back to verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is what? Love from a pure heart and what? A good conscience and a what? Sincere faith. So go back to 19 now. Keeping faith and a good conscience. Okay, it's critical that we keep our faith, that we keep a good conscience. You know how often the Bible tells us to keep, to keep, to keep, to hold fast, to hold tightly, to hold on to Christ and to hold on to our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? There's an interesting play in the book of Jude where it talks about how the Lord, we are kept for Jesus Christ. First few verses in Jude. It's only one chapter if you want to call it a chapter. And then it talks about the angels who did not keep their own estate. But they, and they abandoned their abode, right? And, and it says that they, you know, went after strange flesh. And, you know, it, uh, it's, you know actually it says they didn't uh, continue in the faith. It says, and angels who did not keep their own estate, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Then the very next verse goes on to talk about just the Sodom and Gomorrah and the seas around them in the same way as these. It goes on to say, went after strange flesh. And, uh, and, and they went after strange flesh. They indulged in uh, gross immorality, it says, and went after strange flesh and are now an example, exhibited as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's heavy. So those angels didn't keep their own domain, but were kept. And then we're told later on in Jude, I think around verse 24, that were kept again. Yet in verse 21, guess what? He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. See that play, interplay going on between him keeping us, but us also keeping the faith? Amen. There's an interesting interplay in the scripture that we see that we need to honor. And there's so many verses that tell us to keep or hold fast our faith. Hebrews 3, 6 says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if... If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Hebrews 3.14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for you promise is Faithful. You have very similar language in Revelation, like Revelation 3.3. 3. So remember that you, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So you have these important verses about keeping. And by the way, he contrasts his warning to Timothy to keep the faith with two people who didn't keep the faith. Look at verse, eight, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are who? Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now these are two men who did not keep a good conscience and did not keep a sincere faith and went astray. And it's interesting because Paul mentions different people that went astray. Later in 2 Timothy, he'll mention uh, Demas. He says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas forsook Paul, having loved this present world system. And he was a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul's. How do we know that? Because in Colossians 4.14, he says, speaks of our dear friend Luke the doctor, 
and Demas send greetings. And in Philemon, verses 23 and 24, two different books, three books he's mentioned because I just mentioned Timothy, but in Philemon, verse 23 and 24, it says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as so do Mark, uh, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow co-laborers or fellow workers. Demas was a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul's, mentioned in three of his letters, yet he forsook Paul having loved this present world. He did not continue in the faith. We must keep the faith. Now, after he talks about keeping faith and a good conscience, right after that, what's the next part of verse 19? Keep me faith and a good conscience, which some have what? Rejected and suffered what? Shipwreck in regard to what? In regard to their what? Their faith. Their faith. So here's, you know, some, and then he goes on to mention who? Hymenaeus and Alexander. Exhibit A, exhibit B, Timothy. Let these be warnings to you. Do not do what they did. An obvious warning that you can have genuine faith. Is Timothy, does Timothy have genuine faith? When he says, keep a good conscience and, and keep the faith, is Timothy's faith sincere or not? Of course it is. He's his son in the faith. He wouldn't tell him to keep it if it was bad, right? If you had, if you had a phony $100 bill, I wouldn't say, make sure you keep that. I'd say, don't use that, buddy. You'd be in jail. You know, well, probably not. You'd probably figure it out. Uh, get a liberal judge. He'll probably give you 100 bucks of taxpayer money these days, right? California. Uh, but anyway, it's interesting because he tells them to keep faith, keep good conscience, and keep the faith. Which some have what? Rejected. Having suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. We have to be really careful. With, we have to continue in the faith because your faith can become shipwrecked. You know, do you realize there can be thousands and thousands and thousands of other names put down there? He just puts Hymenaeus and Alexander there. But how many people have you known who profess faith in Christ? You know, expressed love for Jesus, even had some fruit for a while, but then they went through, you know, some kind of temptation they faced or they, some kind of crisis they went through and all of a sudden you realize, wow, they're not following the Lord anymore. You know, they become bitter in their heart or they became full of lust and they've, you know, sought a totally different life than Jesus. That is heartbreaking. In Luke chapter 11 or Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives the parable of the sower and there he talks about four different types of soil. And I don't want to go through the whole parable because I want to get to a lot of other texts. But he, two of the ones he mentions, he says, those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they what? Fall away. Okay? They believe for a while, they have faith for a while, but in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, just before that, he talks about how the devil tries to take the seed away from others so they will not believe and be what? Saved. So when you sow the word of God and you're sharing the gospel with people, Satan's actively trying to take it away from their heart so they won't believe and be saved because if they believe, they'll be what? 
saved, it says. Well, these guys believed for a while, which means they were saved for a while. But in time of temptation, it says they fell away. Now, uh, it's critical. Now, we have to understand this, and it's very, very important that Christians understand this, is, you know, when the, the whole debate in the church as to whether or not you can forfeit your salvation, you can reject your salvation, it's a big debate that's been going on for 2,000 years. Well, in the first few hundred years of church history, it was going on between the Christians and the Gnostics, you know? The church fathers said the Gnostics, these false teachers are teaching that you could be lost in such a way that you can't be saved, you know? That your nature is so ruined that you can't even be saved. And you can be saved in such a way that you can't be lost, you know? And they came against that as a false teaching. And the early church fathers, whether you're reading Justin Martyr, you're reading Irenaeus and Tertullian, the other church fathers, uh, they pretty much all speak on how important it is to continue in the faith. And if you reject the faith, you can be thrust, it says, from the kingdom of God. I mean, there, I can marshal all those quotes, but I'd rather stick with the scripture this evening. But it wasn't until, even if some say, well, the teaching that once you're saved, you're always saved, started with Augustine. Didn't start with Augustine. He was a fourth century Roman Catholic theologian. He taught a version of that. He taught a version of that, but he didn't teach full-blown that whoever saved will automatically be, stay saved. You know what Augustine taught? He taught there are certain people that are saved that are given the gift of perseverance. In other words, there are certain people that are elect and chosen by God who God's predestined to be saved, listen up, and he's given them the gift of perseverance. Certain people only. And others who are saved that aren't given that gift will fall away. Having once been saved, they will perish. Because guess what he was trying to do? He was trying to stay with the teaching of the early church fathers that you could be saved and then you could fall away. But he was also trying to maintain his earlier Gnosticism, because none of the early church taught this, that you could be saved in such a way where you're predetermined, because the Stoics and the Gnostics uh, had these kind of strange deterministic views, uh, then you're, you're, you're bound for heaven no, no matter what, because God's picked you out as one of his favorites and he's giving you a special gift of perseverance in your faith. It's not, not biblical. And it wasn't until the 1500s uh, when John Calvin came around that he said everybody is saved that gets saved is predestined for heaven and they can't be lost and they'll just persevere in their faith and they, you really can't shipwreck your faith if it's real. Well, that's contrary to what we're reading right here. You can't shipwreck your faith. Otherwise, this warning does not apply to Timothy. But you notice, he says to Timothy, his son in the faith, that he's to keep a good conscience and keep the faith. In other words, the faith are genuine because other people, their faith has become what? Shipwrecked. And guess what? Your faith can become shipwrecked, Timothy. And exhibit A and B is, is you know, Hymenaeus, Humanaeus in the Greek, and Alexander. These are two exhibits right here who have not kept the faith. But it, it's not possible that that could happen to Timothy. Why does he warn them? Well, just because he warns them doesn't mean it's going to happen. Of course it doesn't mean it's going to happen. If there's a bottle of arsenic that you see and it says, don't take this, it'll kill you. Well, that doesn't mean it's going to happen. But guess what? Because there's a warning means it what? Certainly can happen. Amen? Otherwise, why is there a warning there? Amen? When the Bible speaks about falling away, you're definitely, it's not, well, they really didn't have true faith. You know, no, he's talking about shipwrecking your faith. You know, so it's important to understand uh, if, if the, the faith could be shipwrecked, 
right? Think about it, you know. That obviously means, you know, it couldn't be shipwrecked if it wasn't, didn't really exist. Could you imagine going to the beach with somebody who believes that, hey, you're predetermined and you have no choice in your faith and what have you, and, and then you see a ship that's been all broken to pieces, that's washed up on the beach, you're like, oh, Lord, hope these people are okay, you know, and man, look at this shipwrecked, you know, this, this shipwreck, man, here's the bow, here's the stern, here's, wow, what a trip, here's the steering wheel over here, it's like, what in the world? Well, if it was destroyed, it really wasn't a ship. Do you understand that? No. Just because it was destroyed doesn't mean, the fact that it was destroyed means it existed, amen? And if your faith can be destroyed, it can become shipwrecked as did, as were Hymenaeus' Alexander's and Timothy, that can happen to you. This is one of the clearest verses, by the way, that show you that your, shape, your faith can be shipwrecked. A lot of times in the debate, people talk about losing your salvation, not losing your salvation. That, that terminology, I'm not against it. I'm sure I've used it at times, but the Bible doesn't talk about losing your salvation so much as, you know, rejecting, right? As falling away from, right? It's not like you just lose your salvation like you lose your keys. Oh no, what happened to my salvation today? That does, that, no, you have to commit apostasy. That's turning away from the faith. That's re, the word here is rejected. They rejected a good conscience and faith. Amen? So it's a decision. And understand this. When we're talking about uh, forfeiture of salvation, we're not talking about uh, being good enough to be accepted by God. And if anyone teaches that, that's, that's wrong. What we're teaching about, we're saved by grace through faith. Amen? And our works or our fruit is simply the fruits of true faith. Amen. If you're trusting Jesus, you are saved. And if you continue to trust Jesus, you will have fruit in your life. Amen. Amen. So it's not like, have I done enough good things to be saved and right with God? No, you're saved because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He died for your sins. He paid for every one of them. You're forgiven through faith in Christ. Amen. Amen. And as you put your trust in him, you know, you're right with him. In fact, the Bible says you're saved by faith, but you know what it also says? You're kept by faith. In 1 Peter 1.5, Peter speaks of those who are, you know, he says who are kept by the power of God. It says you are kept by the power of God through faith, he says. You are kept by the power of God through faith. And then he goes on, that's verse 5 in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verse 5, then in verse, I think, 13, he talks about the outcome of your faith, right, is your salvation. He's talking about your final salvation when the Lord Jesus is revealed, amen, final salvation. And so we're, so we're, we're saved by grace through faith. Now, do we, do we say, oh, if you say you have to have faith to be saved, that that's work salvation? No. No, you'd have to be ridiculous to say that because that's the condition throughout Scripture. So if you say that you're saved by grace through faith, that's not works. Either is it works to say we're saved or we're kept by the power of God through faith. Amen? Amen. So we're also kept through faith. That's not work salvation because it's the same condition. Saved by grace through faith. So right here in 1 Timothy, he's warning him. And, and, he's, and Timothy is to teach other good brethren, right? So they can teach others. Amen? And Paul made sure that this was put down in Scripture so we can know that we need to learn from this. That people's faith has been shipwrecked against the rocks of heresy. And we need to make sure the same doesn't happen to us. Go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. And when you get there, go ahead and look at verse 18. He's warning the Christians, the Roman believers, or 
don't be, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. He's talking, he's using the olive tree as a picture of salvation, the salvation tree. And he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. And he's talking about the Jewish branches, branches who when Christ came, they rejected him and they were broken off. He says, don't be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but it's the root that supports you. You will say that branches were broken off, so I might be grafted in. And that's what a lot of, the, uh, a lot of people say, hey man, God's done with the Jews. He wanted me to be saved, a Gentile. Well, look at what he says in verse 20, if you cop that attitude. Quite right, they were broken off, but he says, for their what? Unbelief. Unbelief. But you stand by your what? Faith. Don't be conceited, but what? Fear. So the reason you stand in salvation is owing to God's grace by your faith. faith. Amen? Not by your works. We're saved by grace through faith. But look what Paul says so clearly. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that's the Jews who rejected Messiah, he will what? He will not spare you either. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. Look what he says. To you, God's kindness, if. Ooh, a big door swing on the hinge of the word if. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be what? Cut off. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Do you believe that you have to continue in the faith, and if you don't continue in the faith, you can be cut off? I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to believe the word of God. Amen. That the scriptures, thus saith the word of God. And you can try to make it say whatever you want to try to make it say, but they're going to have to stand before God and talk about why you try to explain that away. Because that's as clear as day, man. That we stand by faith. And by the way, is he warning non-believers here? Do non-believers stand by faith? Absolutely not. He's warning those who stand by faith that if they need to continue the faith. If they don't continue the faith, he won't spare them either, and they will be what? Cut off. Cut off. Okay? Thus saith the scripture. Now, I'm one who doesn't like to trifle with the word of God at all. I, I approach his word with fear and trembling. And when I see a promise, I say yes and amen and praise you, Jesus, you're awesome. When I see a warning, I say yes and amen, Jesus, you're awesome. Same thing, man. I consider the goodness and the severity of God. And we need to consider his goodness, his grace, but we also need to consider his warnings. Today we live in an age where people want their ears tickled and they don't want to hear the warnings. And when they see the warnings, they explain the way and they bend the scripture to fit with some kind of theological training they had or something they heard from a pastor. But if you just take the scripture for what it says, there's a lot of warnings there. In fact, go back up or, or go forward actually to the book of uh, Colossians. Go to Colossians, and uh, when you get there, go to Colossians chapter 1. It's a beautiful promise here. Colossians chapter 1. I love verse, look at verse uh, 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's us, man. We were at one time hostile toward God. We were alienated from God. We were separated from God. But look at verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Isn't that awesome? That even though you were separated from God and alienated from him, 
hostile in your mind, you know, filled with evil works. Because of Christ's shed blood and dying for your sins, you're forgiven now. And now he says, and I look at verse 22, he's reconciled you through his fleshly body, right? In order what? To present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So you'll, you're, you'll go before the Lord, holy and blameless and beyond reproach because of what Jesus did. But there's a condition. Look at the very next verse. If indeed you what? Continue in the faith. Firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. You have to continue. That's, it's that simple. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Think about it. How did you get saved? By just saying, by just knowing that Jesus died for everybody? No, that didn't save you. You were called what? To put your trust in Jesus, amen? To repent and put your faith in Christ, amen? And guess what you're called to continue to do? Put your faith in Jesus. Not that hard to understand. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be some kind of genius. You're simply called to continue to trust. That's the same condition God gave you from the very beginning to be saved, amen? And that condition doesn't go away. We are kept by the power of God through faith. And praise God for his keeping power. We believe very strongly in his keeping power, amen? That neither height nor depth nor principality or power nor any other creation to think is separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, amen? The love of God which is where? In Christ Jesus. As long as we are in Christ Jesus, amen? And a few chapters later, Paul goes on to talk about how you have to continue the faith to stay in Christ Jesus, though, amen? So we just have to continue to trust him. No outside force can take us away from him, amen? The Father and Jesus are greater than all. No one can snatch us from their hands, Amen? Praise God. Amen. Now, back to Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Now, it's interesting that here he says, in verse 19 again, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have, made, some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. He's instructing Timothy. Fight the good fight. Hold on to the faith. And by the way, it's obviously a nautical term, right? A term that's used in, you know, with boats and sailing and shipwrecking your faith, you know? And it's interesting, there's so many nautical terms used throughout the New Testament that have to do with boats and shipping because guess what? There's agrarian language used over and again, over again because they were farming communities and so forth. But... Becoming shipwrecked was a, a, a mariner's worst nightmare, becoming shipwrecked. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians being shipwrecked three different times. Can you imagine that? And he was in the deep overnight, you know, freezing, and everybody was afraid they were going to die for a while. There's some crazy things that happened with Paul. But it's interesting, these nautical terms that are used, because in the book of Jude, because here he talks about your faith being shipwrecked. And how would, how would, how, how does a ship become wrecked? Could it be a storm that just tosses it around and destroys it? Could it hit the reefs, right? That they don't, the hidden reefs that just are destroyed the bottom of the boat. There's different, various ways a ship can become shipwrecked. But the Lord uses and warns with this kind of, this kind of language over and over again in regard to our faith. In fact, that language is used in the book of Jude, which I referenced earlier. He, he mentions, uh, you know, he talks to Jude, he says, you know, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the call, beloved in God the Father, and so forth. And he says, beloved, you know, my desire was to write to you about our common salvation. He says, but God changed his heart. 
And he wrote to them to earnestly contend for the faith which was once fathered delivered to the saints, right? And then what did he warn about? For certain men have crept in unaware. Okay, those who long beforehand were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons, he said, who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness and denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what he goes on to say a few verses after that, four or five verses later? He says, they are, these men, he said, are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, in other words, they don't fear God. These men, he says, are hidden reefs in your love feast. Okay? When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, they're narcissistic. They're like wolves, man. Okay? And he says, clouds without water, carry along with, by winds. Yeah, they're carried along by demonic winds, you know? And, and that's a warning to us. That people in our very midst could be stakes in the grass, could be wolves in sheep's clothing, could be seeking opportunity to glorify themselves. As Paul warned the same church in Acts chapter 20, that from among your own selves, disciples will rise up drawing disciples after them. Even among the elders, that's right, he's talking to the same church here, church of Ephesus, guys. So you can't just say, wow, praise God, I go to Blessed Oak Chapel. Man, we're, it's a God-fearing church, you know. The, the word is preached. There's a good track record by the grace of God. I'll praise the Lord. And I could just let my guard down because everybody loves Jesus so much. And before you know it, you start listening to somebody, you know, sharing some kind of lies to draw you after themselves instead of the word of God and Jesus. Instead of encouraging the unity of the faith in Christ, they're out for themselves. There's cancers in the church. That was Alexander, okay? That was Hymenaeus, okay? That was these teachers that started teaching that you had to keep the law of Moses. In Jude, he's talking about guys that are turning grace into a license. In 2 Peter, or sorry, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that we're discussing, he's talking about the legalists, the other extreme. You got to keep the law of Moses. So reefs can come in many different shapes. They can come as licentious shapes and they can come in legalistic shapes. We stick to Jesus, Amen. We stick to him, the author and the finish of our faith, the lover of our souls, our redeemer who gave himself for us, you know. In fact, you'll see later that uh, Hymenaeus, he's mentioned later in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I think around verses 17 and 18, where he's teaching that the resurrection has already come to pass. And by doing so, he's overthrowing the faith of some. He's destroying people's faith. Their faith is being shipwrecked because of his false teaching that the resurrection has already come to pass. Oh, the resurrection, that's not literal. We're not literally going to be resurrected. So that probably didn't go over very well at church of, or in Ephesus, you know, because a lot of them didn't believe in a physical resurrection. So let's just kind of compromise with the idolaters or whatever he was teaching. He was definitely teaching the resurrection had come to pass, teaching false doctrine. John Wesley, considered by many to be the greatest evangelist who ever lived, uh, He'd be second to Jesus by far and second and third to Paul by far, but, you know, but he was, I'm sure, up there because he led so many people to Christ uh, and so many people that came after him and his movement had led so many people to Christ. The Methodists and when they were more solid, and there's still some solid Methodist churches, but there's many that aren't today because centuries go by and apostasy sets in. But in the 1700s, in his book, John Wesley, in his, not his book, but in his his writing called Predestination Calmly Considered, he wrote the following about this verse about being shipwrecked. He says, the one who is ended with the, with the faith which produces a good conscience may nevertheless finally fall. Appears from the words of St. Paul to Timothy, 
war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. He goes on to say, observe, these men had once the faith that produces a good conscience, which they once had, or they could not have put it away, or as NSB says, rejected. They, may, they, may, they made shipwreck of the faith, which necessarily implies the total and final loss of it. It remains then that one who has the faith which produces a good conscience may yet finally fall. And he says in his works, Wesley's works, uh, 10, volume 10, page 297, 298, a child of God that is a true believer, for he that believeth is born of God, while he continues to be a true believer, cannot go to hell. Amen to that. If a believer may make shipwreck of the faith, he is no longer a child of God. And then he may go to hell. Yea, and he certainly will if he continues in unbelief. If a believer may, may, uh, may make shipwreck of faith, then a man that believes now may be an unbeliever sometime hence. Yea, very possibly tomorrow. But if so, he was a child of God today, may be a child of the devil tomorrow. For God is the father of them that believe, so long as they believe. But the devil is the father of them that believe not, whether they did once believe or no. Which is pretty powerful words there. Now, it's interesting because in one sense, faith is a gift. In what sense? Objectively speaking. We can't come to faith, right? unless we have the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? And we're given incentive to put our trust in him. And uh, it's not only given to us to suffer, Paul says, but it's given us to, 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 to believe, to trust the Lord. So in one sense, God, that, that faith is a gift offered to everybody. In what sense? Jesus says, for instance, if you don't believe my words to those he was seeking to bring to faith, he says, if you don't believe my words, believe my what? Believe my works or believe my miracles. So it was his miracles that would give them the ability to what? Believe. believe. His words should have too. There's times where he's astonished. It's trip when you see Jesus astonished. Sometimes he's astonished that no one believed. Another time he's astonished with the Canaanite woman that the Jews weren't believing what she did believe. That shows you that faith is also what? There's a subjective aspect where we are the believers. It's not that God believes and trusts himself through you because the Lord wants everybody to come to faith, amen? Jesus said in John chapter five, verses 34 through 40, he said to, speaking of his words now, he said to the religious leaders there, he says, I'm saying these things that you may have life. But he said, but you're unwilling to come to me that you may be saved. So he says things to engender faith but you can reject trusting him. Or you can come to faith, and then according to this scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we just looked at Romans 11, and we looked at Colossians chapter 1, you can make shipwreck of your faith and fail to continue in the faith. Amen? So somebody might say to you, yeah, but you know, faith is a gift. Say, yeah, amen, it is. We couldn't believe and trust Jesus if God didn't open our eyes to that reality. But then share with him, but guess what? He wants everybody to believe. He wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Amen. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He says, if you don't believe my words, believe my miracles. What's he doing there? Seeking to elicit faith from them. Amen. Amen. But we, in our stubborn hearts, can. We have a choice. We can reject him. Amen. We don't have to put our trust in him. 
So you have a choice. Salvation is not, you know, it's not like, you know, some people look at salvation as, man, wow, I came to Jesus and it's as though they got on this, this elevator to heaven and there's no way they can get off it. But that's not how the Bible teaches it. It doesn't teach this static kind of thing. It teaches a dynamic, relational thing. It's not, you know, uh, you know, it's not, you know, predetermined. It's God's influence is by his spirit, amen, through his gospel upon human hearts that can relate to him and love him. And the Bible says faith works through love or reject him and choose not to love him and have faith. So it's important to understand that. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a great story in Acts chapter 27, which I think is a beautiful illustration of how salvation works. Uh, in that illustration, and it's actually something that took place, so I, I just use the illustration. It's historical. In Acts 27, that's when Paul had that, that radical shipwreck where they're clinging to boards, and the, it was just, the, the, the ship was just broken into a bunch of pieces, and they're, they're clinging to boards for their lives, and, and they're freaking out. And uh, there's this beautiful promise in Acts chapter 27. Uh, an angel tells Paul that all 276 people would live. All of them. All Paul, all 276 of these guys are going to live. It's a great promise. But some of the sailors, they got freaked out. And they sought the captain to get a, light, to get a boat, one of the small boats that was on the ship, and take off. And it's kind of interesting because they wanted to use a smaller boat. And Paul warned the captain that if you allow this to take place, those who leave will not survive. Wait a minute. You just said all 276 would live, that angel said. Was that true? Yeah. But no, no. But if they leave, they'll perish. Is that true? Yes. It's called a conditional promise. Amen. And our, prom our salvation is, is conditional. We're saved by grace through faith. And we are in the greatest ship ever who will never become shipwrecked. We're in Jesus. Amen. But if we take a little boat away from him and turn away from him, we'll perish. Okay. So it's really interesting when you think of this. Uh, now, by the way, that Greek word for shipwreck there, naugeo or geo, in verse 19, it means, quote, to break a ship to pieces. Okay? Uh, and it's interesting. Paul uses that word. It's only used one other time in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Uh, this passage that we're just talking about there and in uh, Acts 27, it says that was broken up in verse 41. Okay, the boards uh, uh, fell apart, verse 44. Uh, and man, so, it, so this is what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. Their faith was shipwrecked. And by the way, they were children of God. How do I know that? Well, they had genuine faith, it says. But you know how else I know that? Because as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Amen. Those who aren't disciplined didn't belong to the Lord, right? Amen. It says that in Hebrews chapter 11. But those he, who belong to him, he disciplines, he spanks, amen? Well, guess what? They're handed over for discipline in verse 20. They're handed over to Satan, right? So they might learn not to blaspheme. So as backslidden children, God's given them opportunity to come back. Sadly, by the time you get to 2 Timothy, uh, Alexander's not mentioned, Philetus and other guys mentioned, but Hymenaeus is still mentioned as teaching this heresy that that the resurrection has already come to pass. Wow. Now, Timothy is saying, don't let this happen to you. And brothers and sisters, don't let what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander happen to you. Don't let your faith become shipwrecked. Amen. And 
it bothers me, it breaks my heart actually, because there are so many, so many professing, formerly professing Christians whose faith has become shipwrecked. And a lot of times the cause of that is because they're told, don't worry, your faith could never become shipwrecked. If you have genuine faith, you'll always have genuine faith. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture, but there's a lot of warnings your faith could become shipwrecked. And they're taught that, therefore they're not on guard. But we're in a spiritual warfare. Remember he says, war the warfare? War the warfare, man. Stand fast in the faith, he's saying. Hold it, amen? That's what we need to do. And he's warning Timothy not to deny the reality that that could happen to him. And you know, to deny that your faith could be shipwrecked is like denying John 15, 6. Same folks who deny John 15, 6, Jesus' words there, where he talked about branches that are in the vine, right? And then they cease to bear fruit, are cut off and thrown in the fire and burned. Or it'd be like denying Jesus Christ's warnings that if you deny the Lord, he will also deny you, amen, in Matthew 10. Or it'd be like denying Jesus' warning in Matthew 10 and Matthew chapter 24 that he, that, that you have to endure to the end to be what? Saved. It'd be like denying Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that uh, where he talks about after being in the race, he beat his body down. He went and make sure he continued faith so he himself did not become rejected or docomos, which is used elsewhere by Paul of being damned. Or it'd be like denying Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 3 about the salt losing its savor. Or it'd be like denying Jesus' warning in Revelation 3, 5 that it's only the overcomers whose names are not blotted out of the book of life. Or it'd be like denying Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, where Jesus warned about a man who received forgiveness from his master in the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And then he refused to forgive another person and he forsakes his own or forfeits his own forgiveness and is thrown into torment. Or it'd be like denying Revelation 22 verse 19, which is given to us by Jesus, which warns that you can forfeit your inheritance in the holy city. Or it'd be like, you know, denying what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 and 13, that a brother needs to, guess what, not go back to the flesh for those who live according to the flesh will die. Amen? But th those who through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body shall live. It'd be like denying Galatians 5, 19 through 21, which says those who live according to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. It'd be like denying 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20, which says a member of the body of Christ can take the member of Christ and become one with a prostitute, even though he has the Holy Spirit in him and that you are temples of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body. It'd be like denying that that could happen and then denying the verses before that, that those who have been justified, those who have been sanctified, that they can be deceived and become adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and revilers and drunkards and not inherit the kingdom of God. It'd be like denying all these different passages. It'd be like denying Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower, where you can believe for a while and then fall away, which I mentioned earlier. It could be like denying Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' words there, and denying that the virgins could run out of oil. When obviously five of them did. It'd be like denying Second Peter chapter two and say that, well, really you can't deny the Lord who bought you and go to the place of great darkness forever. Or denying Hebrews three, it'd be like denying Hebrews chapter three, verse 12, where it talks about brethren, you know, who can harden their hearts and fall away from the living God. It'd be like denying Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, that after those who had been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, right? After receiving the knowledge of the truth and sanctified by Christ's blood, later trample under, trample under foot and receive eternal fire, 
are destroyed by God's, the fire of God's wrath. Or it could be like denying Luke chapter 21 uh, and denying that Lot's wife looked back or that that could happen to us. It'd be like denying Jesus' words in Matthew 25 about the servant who buried his talents and went to outer darkness. Or it'd be like denying 2 Peter 2, 20 through 22 and claiming that, hey, well, when it says that they, after knowing Jesus' epigenosis, uh, that they went back and like the dog to the vomit and the pig to the mire, that that can't actually happen. Or we like denying Hebrews chapter six, four through eight, talking about after they had received the Holy Spirit, right? Yep. And it's impossible to renew them again to repentance and they repentance. So the repentant people would receive the Holy Spirit that they end up crucifying Christ afresh. It'd be like denying that scripture as well. It'd be like denying Jesus' words in Revelation chapter two to the church at Ephesus that they had left their first love. It'd be like denying Revelation chapter three, the church of Laodicea, that the lukewarm will be spit out of Jesus's mouth. It'd be like denying Galatians chapter one, where Jesus or Paul talks about how after receiving the grace of the gospel, right, they turned to a different gospel. Or it'd be like denying Galatians chapter five, verses one through four, where after they'd been set free by the glorious gospel, set free, guess what? They go back and are entangled again, keeping the law, cut off from Christ and fall from grace, verse four. Be like denying all these various scriptures. Be like, like denying 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where the apostle Paul warns those who have to, are to keep the simplicity of their faith, the chaste, virgin, true, and genuine believers where they receive a different gospel. They're warned that they could receive a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different spirit. All these different warnings. It'd be like, it'd be like you know, ignoring or denying Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, which says the just shall live by faith. That once you've been justified, you're to live by faith now. The just shall live by faith, but if he draws back, my soul will have no pleasure of him. But we are not them that draw back to perdition, damnation, but those who believe unto the saving of the soul, final salvation. Be like denying all these various passages and many more, uh, which I'm not going to mention. Oh, yeah, we can mention a lot more, you know. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, I declare unto the gospel by which you are being saved. If you hold fast, if you hold fast. So when he declares what the gospel is, he says you're being saved by it, present tense, by the way, if you hold back. Okay, don't challenge me, bro. I'll keep going on this and I'm not gonna make my time. I'm, I'm, I'm close right now, okay? <laughs> Praise the Lord, amen. So what do we need to do? We need to understand the trajectory here. Understand, now this is, to me, I think it's very, very important that we get this and we, we follow this because notice what's happening here. It's, it's kind of subtle and it's almost nuanced until you really pay attention. Remember I said one five is the key? One of the major keys in, in 1 Timothy. Now I've got various commentaries on Timothy and I wish they would highlight how important verse five is. It's, it's you know, part of his thesis, if not, you know, his thesis. Because when he says to them, now go back now to 118, and let's look at what we've looked at so far. This command I entrust, it's a command, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have what? Rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now he's talking about Hymenaeus and Alexander. He's talking about two teachers that have rejected the faith. They've gone astray. They've shipwrecked their faith. Timothy, do not follow suit. But back up. Now notice what he mentioned. 
How do you war the warfare? A good conscience and what? Good conscience and what? And faith, amen? That's in verse 19, right? Now look at verse five again, and watch what happens here. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at verse six now. For some men, what? Strain from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. That's what's going on here. Verse five, that's the goal of what we should be doing as Christians. Amen? I remember after I preached that message on 1 Timothy 1.5, I think it was Heidi came up and she said she shared it with another sister that doesn't go to the fellowship. She comes and visits one time because she lives a little ways away and that they were both so blessed by it. And it's like, well, man, I'm glad they were because that, that verse blesses me so much. Those three things are so, are so critical and I let them guide me a lot in my ministry because I like to spend time in the pastoral epistles and meditate upon what the Lord says to pastors like Timothy and to Titus and that's that, not to veer from that, not to go to the law, not to go to license. But guess what? Verse five, certain men, they've strayed from these things. Now we're starting to learn who these certain men are. Alexander and Hymenaeus. And then he brings it back up again. Timothy, you don't stray from these things. You don't, let your, you don't reject these things like these men. You don't allow your faith to be shipwrecked. So we need to hold on to our faith. We need to continue to hold it. Because look what he says in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Look at what would be coming around the pike. And a lot of this started to take place more and more right after Paul wrote this even. But the Spirit, verse, says, uh, verse 1 says, explicitly says that in the later times, some will be fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Well, what are we supposed to do then, Timothy? How do we, or Paul, how do we fight that? Look at verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself. Watch your heart, man. And your teaching. How do you apply this? You watch your heart, man. You pay close attention. Where am I with the Lord? Am I trusting him? Do I have love from a pure heart? Do I have a sincere faith? Do I have a good conscience? Is there something bugging me because I'm doing something wrong? I need to repent of it and get right? Do it. Get right. Put faith in the Lord. Ask him for cleansing. You'll be cleansed. Pay close attention to yourself and to your what? To your doctrine or to your teaching. Make sure you are scriptural. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will what? Ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who what? For those who hear you. Amen? Amen. And he's telling Timothy that as a young pastor. But in our own ministries, we need to watch our lives. Apply this to your life now. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine. Make sure that you're holding fast to a good conscience. Make sure that you have a sincere faith and that you're walking in righteousness, that you're walking in integrity. You know, and then I go to 2 Timothy chapter, or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation. He warns about going after money and putting money first in your life instead of Jesus. Or putting it high up, putting it before the Lord. But those who want to get rich and fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have what? Wandered away from the faith and pierced them through with many, themselves with many griefs. You want more Israel? Here they are. Amen. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 19, or 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone what? 
astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So it could be Gnostic knowledge. It could be false knowledge. It could be Darwinism. It could be, you know, postmodernism. It could be whatever. Or it could be money or whatever. Anything that steers you away from the faith, eschew it. Go to 2 Timothy 4. This is why it gets crazy in the last days. For the time will come, verse 3, preach the word in season out, see, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and instruction. For time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but when they have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn their ears from the truth and will turn aside to fables or myths. Wow. And that's happening today. I was interviewed yesterday by a woman by the name of Doreen Virtue, and I've uh, been getting interviewed a lot, as I said earlier lately, and uh, with our new Marvel video out and everything. And she was the most popular, most famous, the best-selling uh, channeler, New Age channeler, uh, seven, eight years ago or so. And she was just, her, she was on tour with, uh, you know, Wayne Dyer, you know, subconscious mind guy and Arona's Zones and all that. He was, she was on tour with Deepak Chopra. She was doing all that stuff. She was channeling angels and stuff, and she thought it was good. All these positive messages. And I asked her, even though she's interviewed me, I kind of turned the tables and I asked her, you know, got her talking, you know. And I asked her, I go, well, how, share with us how you got saved. I'm sure your audience heard this before, but I want to hear how you got saved because I never actually heard about her testimony, but I never heard her testimony. And in a, in a nutshell, she said, Joe, she said, uh, you know, she wrote all these books about channeling angels, right? I mean, she was the top seller in the New Age movement, which is huge around the world. And if you just type in Doreen in YouTube, the first or second name that would come up would be Doreen Virtue. That'll be her. And she said, I was driving down the road and I heard a preacher preaching on the radio. And he was going through 2 Timothy 4, verses 2 through 4 right here. I don't know if she mentioned the verse, but this is what she's talking about, about people tickling people's ears, telling them that they want to hear. And I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. She said, I went home and I told my husband, I'm a false teacher. So I started searching in the Bible, Joe, and, and uh, wow, I read in Deuteronomy chapter 18 all these different occult practices. I said, that's me. And she said, I found out that I'm an abomination to God. I'm in big trouble. And she said she repented and put her faith in Jesus. And she put her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and turned from all that stuff. Well, guess what? Praise God. God's word is sharp, amen? It's powerful, amen? So let's close with 2 Timothy 4. Verses six through eight, Paul said, I'm already being poured out like a drink as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I'm sorry. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me and not uh, on that day and not to me only, but who? I'm sorry, I've got that memorized in the King James, so I keep jumbling it up as I read it. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's finish our course, guys. Let's keep the faith. Did you guys see that gal in the news who broke that guy out of jail? Just was in Florida? Is that Florida? Yeah, it was just about a, two weeks ago. She broke a, she was a, she was one of the officers there. She broke him out of jail. Did anybody see that story? A lot of you saw the story, Okay. And she broke him out and she's on the run with him and he was like six foot seven or so and huge, 300 and some pound dude. And, and she, he seduced her and suckered her in or whatever and she ended up, they ended up catching her and she ended up shooting herself in the head and killing her. You know what was crazy when I was reading about that story? It says everybody thought she was gonna retire, okay? Nobody saw this coming. 
In the days leading up to the brazen escape with jailhouse surveillance cameras recorded at 9.30 a.m. on the day Vicki White was supposed to retire, she sold her four-acre property for $95,000 and used it, a fake name to buy a getaway car. She withdrew tens of thousands of dollars from the bank and also picked up guns, men's clothing, and other supplies. She was a retired to go to the beach. The day she's supposed to retire, she does all this stuff and she breaks this guy out and she ends up shooting herself in the head. Guys, do you realize how close you are to retiring? Because our life is a vapor, amen? It's over quick. Do not throw in the towel. Do not forsake the faith. Do not allow your faith to become shipwrecked. Hold on to Jesus, amen? Don't give in to the temptations of the world. Don't give in to a lust for money, a lust for some strange esoteric knowledge from the pit, addictions of whatever sort. Make sure you stay true to Jesus, amen? Praise God. Father God, we love you so much.